Before we get into this episode of Small Doses Podcast with my former professor, Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly, I got to let y'all know that we are actually going to be doing two free Smart, Funny, and Black shows in Nashville, Tennessee on June 17th in partnership with the National Museum of African American Music in honor of Juneteenth. Yes, it's going down. And did I, did I mention the shows were free? That's right, they're free. All you got to do is sign up this Saturday at amandaseals.com to get your tickets to join us on June 17th at the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville, Tennessee. We got two free Smart Funny and Black shows. So excited to be able to bring this to the city. I know with the Tennessee Three and all the madness going on in Tennessee, y'all deserve a break and a good time, a good old black ass time. So I got you. Also, Y'all got to subscribe to Amanda Seals TV on YouTube. We're trying to get to 100,000 subscribers before June 1st. Can you all get us there? Of course you can get us there. Because I know there's at least 100,000 of y'all listening to this podcast right now. So make sure you go to YouTube, Amanda Seals TV, subscribe, and you'll be able to get all the other dope stuff that we are putting up on the channel. Of course, if you want a little bit more Amanda in your life, you can go to Patreon and check out The Amandaverse. All you got to do is go to Patreon and put in my name or go to TheAmandaverse.com. Subscribe for $5 a month. You're going to get bonus content. You're going to get this show right here with no ads. You can also watch the bonus content from Small Doses podcast. And there's going to be other content that we are always posting because we are all about y'all and making sure that y'all feel fulfilled in the content of Amanda Seals. Last but not least, if you haven't checked out my radio show, The Amanda Seals Show, I suggest you do because you can check it out right here where you're getting this podcast. Yes, it is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to listen in your car on the actual radio, just go to theamandasealshow.com to see if we are in your city in syndication. All right. I think it's time that we get into the show. So funky. So y'all know I'm a very nostalgic person. I'm a cancer. It's just part of my makeup. And this episode is a full circle moment. Now, we actually had to make a decision if we're going to categorize this episode under our educator series because the person who's here is a hell of an educator or if we're going to categorize it under what we ended up doing, which was side effects of African-American studies, considering the madness and the attack on African-American studies that's happening in a very, very real way. We thought that was a bigger conversation, so we decided to go that way. Nonetheless, that does not diminish the level of educatorousness <laughs> attached to the one and only Dr. <laughs> professor, Dr. <laughs> professor. <laughs> Dr. Professor Robert D.G. Kelly, who is joining us today. Yay! Now y'all are like, Amanda, relax. But you have to understand, it's nostalgic because this was my professor when I was at the Institute for Research in African-American Studies at Columbia University and also my thesis advisor. That's right. I cannot find my thesis. Um, I have it. What? I do. Shut up. Yep. This is a little story that must be told, right? About hip-hop and African-American narrative. Of course. You have it? Of course. I have everything. I have everything. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. You connected... Because I remember, it's 2005. You know, as old as I am, I still remember things. <laughs> it's a brilliant thesis. It is a model of African-American studies because you connect African-American literature going back to the 19th century to toasts, to hip-hop from the 80s, 90s, up until 
2000, you know, yes. 21st century and make a point about storytelling and how important narrative is, you know, to the culture at large. And you have this like dope conclusion at the end, which just lays out why you're hip hop, <laughs> you know? Yes. That was the days of Amanda Diva. So there you go. Now, now you never know. a dull moment. <laughs> <laughs> my rap days. I cannot believe you have this thesis. I have been trying to find my thesis for years. Like I have every computer that I've ever had. Can't find it on there. I'll send it. <laughs> this is like a breakthrough because I, I am a hoarder, if you haven't noticed. So I keep everything. And the fact that I was never able, like, I don't know where it is. Sharon, shout out to Sharon at Columbia. She said that there was a fire. And like things got lost in a fire or a flood or something or other. And so I just had to, I've had to like part with it and just like send it into the ether. And now it's come back to yes, me. Yes. Just like my mom's grenade necklace. Remember when I lost this necklace, y'all? <laughs> I lost this necklace, Dr. Kelly. And it came back to me. It was in my pocket the whole time, but it came back to me. So Dr. Kelly, can you please real quickly, just because people love a receipt. Mm-hmm. Can you please just qualify for folks what makes you a valuable voice in this conversation on the side effects of African-American studies? Well, I'm not good at, at tooting my own horn, but... Um, I mean, you could just say your job title. Yeah, I'm a professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA. I received my degree, my PhD, many, many years ago from UCLA, but I taught at Columbia University, NYU, University of Michigan, and have been involved in Black studies Basically, everywhere I went. These are all the books this man has written, okay? I think that's also an incredibly important part that we need to acknowledge. It's one thing to just, like, pontificate and talk about. But it's one thing to also then add to the canon of actual, like, academic study, research, and knowledge. Because when I talk about things on Instagram, a lot of times, Dr. Kelly, people will be like, see, the difference about Amanda is that Amanda will make, like, she'll, like, actually, like, have receipts, you know? And she'll actually have, like, facts. And it's like, well, yeah, because I went to school, and in school, you can't say shit without being like, this is how this relates to this other thing that was said. Mm -hmm. And even if it's an original thought... It's got to have some type of connectivity to like, someone said this before. Right. This is why I'm saying this now. Like, you have to show your work. But we live in a world now where not only do people not have to show their work, but there's like an extreme effort to, quote unquote, erase the work that has been done by Black folks and the Mm -hmm. work that has been done by white folks to erase Black folks. Exactly. When it comes to African-American studies, what do we qualify as African-American studies? Because I think a lot of folks with the whole language of CRT, et cetera, Mm -hmm. like they're confused. Right, right. Well, let me just say, you know, we call it African-American studies. We call it Black studies. And I tend to use Black studies only because it is always global, always global. Wherever Black people are and even where Black people are imagined to be. You know, in other words, Black studies is not just a study of what Black people do and how they move through the world, but it's also a study of, of racism, of what's in the mind that produces the figment of the white imagination. So like the Negro, for example, is a figment of the white imagination. It's in- invented. It has nothing to do with the actual people, right. you know? And that's the only way you can create a system like slavery if you can turn Africans into objects, right? And then write onto those objects an image of being either super lazy, superhuman, <laughs> hypersexual, you know, uh, terrified, and animals, right? You, you basically make this myth and then you're terrified because you know that it's not a myth deep down 
And you're reminded of that by things like the Haitian Revolution. You got all these slave masters who are telling the world these people are docile, you know, they're unintelligent. And then in the island of Haiti or San Domingue, you have this rebellion of African people who defeat the British armies, the French armies, the Spanish armies, the French armies again, and basically achieve not only independence, but the first nation in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery, you know? And that's unthinkable, right? So once that happens, then you you know you have slave masters going to bed at night thinking, okay, they're going to cut my throat. As you know? they should. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that's the part. That's the part. And that's why, you know, when we talk about what Black studies is, I tend to use the definition that my mentor, Cedric Robinson, used, which was, it's a critique of Western civilization. You know, the very presence of Black people in the world is a critique of Western civilization because Western civilization is built on Settler colonialism, slavery, racial hierarchy, dispossession, and our very presence in this land to reverse that and to try to bring democracy to the West. Because, you know, the West is not created, you know, around democracy. Black people have been struggling to make it democratic and still struggling to this day. You know, so that's in many ways what Black studies is, a, a critique of Western civilization and a story of how people who were rendered both invisible, rendered inert in some ways, rendered inferior, have actually produced the greatest wealth of possibility, not only material wealth, but intellectual wealth, to try to transform this world and make it a better place. So is it as simple as Black Studies is a critique of Western civilization and thus these people who are trying so hard to silence it are doing so because they don't want to be critiqued. Oh, yeah. Well, they part of it is that it's not just that they don't want to be critiqued. They created a myth that, you know, Black Studies actually critiques the myth. It reveals the myth. It mm-hmm. exposes it. And that myth is, let's just take the United States. The myth is that the United States was created as a free republic in which everyone, the, the basic creed is that everyone is treated equally, Everyone has access to power through democracy, and it's a fair country. What they erase is how this nation came to be through native dispossession, how the wealth is produced through the enslavement. Let me just say capture, because, you know, there were no slaves. There were Black people, there were Africans who were literally kidnapped and brought here to produce wealth. You know, they didn't think of themselves as slaves, there. You know, they were basically producing wealth. And if you recognize this as foundational to the country, then you can't say it was formed as a republic. You have to say that the United States, the closest it comes to being a democratic, multiracial republic is after 1965. Yes. Before that, it wasn't that. Why is it so valuable to them that it be considered a republic? Like, why does it rest on them so heavily that the vision that they've created for how it started is how it is? Mm -hmm. Why is that so valuable? Well, imagine what it means to cross the Atlantic, colonize land, and try to convince many of the poor white indentured servants who you brought to do this work not to cut their master's throats. One of the ways you do that is by saying, you know what? 
okay, you're no longer a servant. We you, you'll be job. like us. Yeah. We'll give you 40 acres. We'll give you a musket. And one day you can be like us. So you start to create this idea of a white identity. And a white identity is tied to what? It's tied to land ownership, wealth accumulation, power, right? And privilege. Yep. So that is foundational to what becomes the United States as a massive empire and considered by the rest of the world to be the wealthiest nation on the planet, right? Which produces the greatest poverty. So it's the wealth. Fundamentally, it's the wealth. If we go back and tell a different story, then what's that logical outcome? The conclusion is reparations, right? And not just for Black people. No, I mean... Native people. You know, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of, of reparations to pay. Yeah. And that wealth would then be taken and redistributed in a way that would undermine what this nation was built on. Well, that's the end of the episode, guys. Uh, <laughs> we're doing a new thing, mini apps, just getting the knowledge to you real quick, 15 minutes or less. I mean, I have seen African-American studies now in a, a number of different iterations, mm-hmm. right? Like, I feel like at Columbia, it was more of a social sciences approach, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say, where it was more holistic, like we were doing history, but then we were also studying the social sciences element. And then where there was also, you know, a literature element, right? Like an arts element. Whereas to my knowledge at Harvard under Skip Gates, it was more like just literature. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> under... I think if memory serves me correct, under, um, I've been losing my memory and I don't know why, so I really need to get some ginkgo biloba, but uh, why am I not thinking of this person's name at Princeton? And this is crazy. What is wrong with me? You're talking about in the past or the present? Past? Yes. Past. Maybe not present. I don't think he's currently the person present. Who is this black man with the afro? Why can I oh, not you know, remember? Not Cornell. Yes. Oh, Cornel oh West. my God. Of course. I'm really losing my memory. Yeah, I, no, I really I, I didn't need think, to go to a neurologist. No, I didn't think you were talking about Cornell West because you're like, how could Harvard. you not remember Cornell's well, name? Yeah. Well, he was at Princeton originally. Right. And I feel like it was a more history based program, like specifically history based. But I will say that I feel like our program that I went through at the Institute makes the most sense mm-hmm. because something that Dr. Marable said, rest in peace, was he was like, we have to study all the elements because we need to know the past in order to apply. Like we're doing this for the purpose of applying it to the present and the future, right. not just for knowing it. sake. Right. And I think a lot of people who don't know what the purpose of African-American studies is, like don't really know, like, well, why would you even take those classes. So like we've talked about like why would these white people, why are these crackers trying so hard? And I won't even say try because they're successfully doing it. Why are they like making it their business to undermine the value of this? Why is it so important that African American studies exist and that we actually like pour into it? Because I think a lot of folks would ask me like why would you bother taking this? Black right, people. Right. All the time. What are you going to do with that? Yeah, I said that to my mother when she went back to get a PhD in, in ethnic studies. I was joking with her. She's like, what are you going to do with that? Um, what did she do with it? Well, she ended up retiring. It's a whole compl- <laughs> complicated issue because she went back much later. But let's get to this question. It's a very good question. It's a critical question. And let me just go at it in two different ways. One, one of the surprising things that people don't always realize is how many white people are in this field of Black studies. Sir. 
you know. When I found out that there were white professors at HBCUs <laughs> and they were teaching African American right. studies, it wasn't that they were just teaching algebra. Right. I was shocked. Yeah, because they studied it. And they're very, I mean, most of them are very good, actually. You know, I don't have any issues with that. But part of what I think the opponents of Black studies are afraid of, and especially those 42 states where they pass all these anti-CRT laws or you have the Anti-Woke Act out of Florida, which Madness. is the dumbest thing. They, they're telling the truth when they say, we, we, we are afraid of what happens if our kids, if our white kids learn this. But the way they frame it, they say, well, we don't want our kids to feel uncomfortable. That's how they frame it. Every time. Every time. Now, you've been in classes, and most white people actually don't feel uncomfortable. They're, like, completely interested and fascinated by it. Well, because they also don't see themselves as the harbingers of these behaviors and actions. And I feel like there's something to be said for like a certain level of empowerment that they feel and like, oh, now I know this and it was kept from me and now I can make better decisions moving forward. Right. And I wouldn't say that goes for everybody, but there's a kind of critical mass of white, Asian, Latinx, who are not Black students who actually start to see the world differently. Yeah. And it's not an accident that those protests in 2015, when both colleges, universities were just racked with these protests against racism on campus, protests trying to build alliances between, say, custodial workers, clerical workers, and students. Many of them were interracial. Like, you had all these white students who were, like, out there saying Black Lives Matter, saying, you know, build a movement, saying anti-racism is unacceptable. So that's part of the danger. So it's not that these kids are feeling uncomfortable. The discomfort they feel is being lied to. That's the discomfort. They, they realize they've been lied to for since they were little kids. And they begin to try to think differently. And again, that's not everyone. But I've seen it happen. And I'm not saying that the purpose of Black studies is to make the rest of the world anti-racist. But it's very hard to take the work seriously and not be exposed to the mythology that's the United States. Right. So there's that. The other part is that, you know, when Black studies began, like we could talk about what was going on 20 years ago, but let's talk about what's going on 60 years ago, 70 years ago, when Black studies erupts in places like San Francisco State University, on the West Coast, Cornell University, these places where Black people took up sometimes guns in, in Cornell, for example. They brought guns to campus and occupied the president's office and said, we're going to have Black studies. Oh, I did not know oh, yeah. if there were guns. Yeah, there were actual guns <laughs> that were loaded. Um, <laughs> that part. Yeah. And then you take San Francisco State University where it took a general strike, a general strike where they shut down the university to get the College of Ethnic Studies. Now, what's interesting about that strike in 1968 to 69 is that the only way they could actually shut down universities is to get the majority white people to support them. And the majority white people, as well as Asian Pacific, of course, all the Black people and Indigenous and Latinx people, they basically refused to come to school because they were fighting against the university that told them they can't have ethnic studies. And is this also when Reagan like chimed in and said like, Oh, I think they want this because they want a break from actual schooling. Like they <laughs> This is around well exactly. Reagan was the was the governor. Right. And this is when he was going after Angela Davis. Yeah. And Angela Davis, you know, of course, 
when she was at UCLA and she gives her series of lectures, these were lectures in Black studies. It's important. She was a philosopher. She is a philosopher. But her lectures were in Black studies. She was giving lectures about Frederick Douglass and the question of liberty, right? And that's what made her dangerous. She wasn't just a member of the philosophy department, right? Right. And that was a period where politically, there was all these possibilities because the social movements in the streets gave birth to Black studies. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't like Black studies came about and then they decided to convince people to protest. It was protest that produced this field, and that field was always dedicated to liberation, liberation of Black people. People don't know that. Hmm. I'm not sure where that got lost in the narrative, but I think there's a certain level of like complacency that starts to happen when you forget what took place to get the opportunity to have things, right? It's just like voting. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I feel like for a lot of people, you have to remind them, you know, people died for you to do this. And they're like, okay, I guess I'll go vote. And it's (laughs) like, I mean, there was a lot of other reasons why you should have voted, but if that's what it took for you, then fine, right? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But even with the Black Studies, I think that there's a certain level of like, just people are used to it now, so they don't realize that it was something that had to be fought for. I mean, when I was at SUNY Purchase, there was no Black Studies. I had to create my own major. Mm-hmm. Now they have Black Studies. I think it should be called the Amanda Seals Black Studies Program, but that's just another, <laughs> that's, that's fine. It's fine. But, they waited for a donation from you. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, actually. But I feel like people, I mean, that wasn't that long ago. I mean, right. that was in 2000. And there was no Black Studies program there. And now there is. And there's a lot of folks that I see that it takes less time, Dr. Kelly, for people to become accepting of like, oh, this is ours now. Mm -hmm. And forgetting that it can be taken. We still live in a country where like things are given and they're never given because it's the right thing to do. Exactly. (laughs) That is exactly right. You have to say that again. (laughs) Because people forget that. <laughs> They're never given because it's the right thing to do, y'all. Like, ever. It's always, they had to show up with loaded guns, right? Mm-hmm. There's always a threat in order to attain. The threat is usually either to the pockets or to the peace. Or both. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we see people look at, like, like Jeremiah had brought up the Shekinah during the the riots was like, why y'all messing up the Gucci store? You know, why y'all doing this? They didn't do nothing to you. You know, like people forget that this is a country where property has always been more important than people. Absolutely. Particularly black people. I think I'm showing off like what I learned from you right now. So particularly black people, we were property. Right. So when we see the police protecting property and like forsaking our lives, it's because like we are not important. We are no longer the property they need to preserve. So like you are just whatever. And particularly if you are disrupting property, Mm -hmm. then you really are completely a non-entity. And I see that a lot of folks don't connect these dots. And so they're comfortable. They're so comfortable. And for me, I feel like 
Black Studies for Black folks at this point is a wake up call to stop being so goddamn comfortable in a world that really is still just being given to you. Right. I think there's a real oversensibility of like, we made it. Right. Which is also a myth. You know, there are always some rich black people. They've you know, always, always been. been. Always been. You know, even 18th century, there's some rich black people. I mean, look, one of the former slaves who was part of the slave ship that arrived in Jamestown in 1619 eventually became a property owner and owned slaves. I know people. <laughs> so that's that then, part. You know, not... Angela Davis's family was on the Mayflower. So, you know, the, the plot twists. Yeah, she's not too happy about that. <laughs> she's um... still upset. <laughs> she's in the group chat like, y'all, I think he's lying. <laughs> she's like, this nigga skip. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> but you, you're so right about that. I mean, the people who actually have a platform who can talk about these things in public are the ones who say we made it. And most of the people who don't have a platform are the ones struggling every single day. And the thing is, and this is how the myth operates, it's not even as if all the white people made it. See, that's the thing. It's like the mythology around white privilege. I mean, there's some, there's white privilege, no question about it. I wouldn't even deny that. But it's the brainwashing of working class and poor white people to convince them that somehow racism is good for them when all it does is keeps wages low in places like West Virginia in the South. It denies people access to medical care, to health care. And they're on public assistance. More white people on public assistance yes. than black people by far. But it doesn't really matter. I mean, I just saw an article where they were saying that a lot of people are going to suffer because the food stamps programs are being cut mm -hmm. in a lot of places. And in this article, they're like, and black people are going to feel the most. And I was like, I yes, to the extent that like anytime there's a mess up or a shutdown, like if we're a part of it, we feel it the most by nature of the fact that we always have the extra element of mm -hmm. being black in it. But we aren't going to be the most people that feel it. Right, exactly. But see, no one wants to talk about that. And in fact, if we talk about what we're seeing today, which is fascism, there's no other way to call it but fascism. Can you please just very quickly encapsulate what fascism is for people? Sure. Fascism, in the simplest terms, is the reduction of democracy to the point where the state is the kind of coercive arm that runs things, that runs policy. And fascism works because fascists are able to convince large numbers of people that the strong man or the state is going to protect them against some threat. God. Like exactly. they essentially present themselves as like, I will be oh, your yeah. dad and exactly. I will be God. You have to have a threat because the reason you have a dad or a God or a strong man is to say, we're going to stop these people. Now, who are the people in the United States? Well, the immigrants, right? <laughs> Jinx, <I need laughs> right? That. And there are black people. So because that's a replacement theory. Like, that's, that's a replacement that... theory. Now, this is how it works around the attacks on schools. We're focused on whether or not Ron DeSantis knows Black history. I don't give a shit what Ron DeSantis knows. The point is, is that his main person in command, Manny Diaz Jr., right, who's Cuban descent, white dude, is connected to, makes his money from charter schools. So what they're trying to do is privatize public education. And the way to do it is to convince 
parents that, you know, you're going to have parental control. And let me back up. These parental groups are funded by who? Koch brothers. They're funded by... DeVos. right? Betsy DeVos. In other words, they have big, dark money coming at them so that they could fight for what they think are parents' rights, which are really saying, we're going to basically gut public education and then give families the option, right, to use vouchers, state money, which they get from our taxes, to give to white people to invest in charter schools and private schools. Which also is hey, you get the option to choose segregation. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's where vouchers came from in the first place, in 1956, in Virginia. African American studies us, please. (laughs) Tell us, what do you mean? (laughs) Well, you know, um, you had Brown versus Board of Education, which was the law of the land when the Supreme Court said you can't segregate schools. So they begin to sort of rapidly try (laughs) to integrate, try. Right. And in Virginia, Harry Byrd, who everyone thinks is a liberal, even Obama liked Harry Byrd for some reason. I don't know why. But Harry Byrd is like, you know, we need massive resistance to integration. Mm-hmm. We need to defend segregation. So Milton Friedman, who was one of the founders of a certain kind of capitalist ideology called neoliberalism, says, look, I got a way. If you provide vouchers, take public funds and give them to families so they could choose to go to schools that are all white, that are private or semi-private, then you solve the problem. Because school choice for them meant all white schools. But again, paid for through public funds that are leveraged to give to white people at the expense. And then what could those funds have done? Those funds were meant to invest in all schools. So what happens to schools that are predominantly Black? Well, we're seeing that. I mean, the schools are attached. This is a side note, but Mm -hmm. schools are attached to property Property taxes. taxes, Right. So places that have the best houses have the best schools. They're paying the most taxes. (laughs) That's right. That's why massive resistance to integration of schools coincides with massive resistance to integration of neighborhoods. (gasps) Right. Because, you know, the suburbs take off in the post-war period the same time at the exact same moment when you have Brown versus Board of Education emerging in the civil rights movement. So who pays for the suburbs? It's still tax money. Federal funds supported it. At the moment of desegregation, federal funds were being used to create developments that were all white. And those developments defended themselves against integration because they knew that the Federal Housing Authority would reduce the value of the houses if they're integrated. Property. Property. Mm-hmm. Changing gears. <laughs> okay, so do you feel like... No, I don't even want to go there yet. First, I want to ask you this. Can you clarify for folks what CRT actually is? Sure. Because the reality is that I think a lot of folks have grasped that like, oh, this is some bullshit, but they don't necessarily know why. And now people have carried forth CRT as uh, euphemism is not the word, but as a misnomer Mm -hmm. for black studies. And so even people who are against what these people are doing are still using their language to discuss it. And I'm just like, stop letting them use these words to talk about black studies. It is not the same thing. Right. Absolutely. Critical race theory, which is used now almost as this empty signifier for communism, you know? But critical race theory is a body of scholarship 
that came out of legal studies, came out of law. People like Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado. They asked a fundamental question. The question was, how is it we can have all these laws that are passed, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, housing, and we still have deep racial inequality. In fact, it gets worse. (laughs) How can that happen? So critical race theory is trying to understand how the law, anti-discrimination law, not just any, like liberal anti-discrimination law actually facilitates ongoing discrimination and the reproduction of inequality. That's the question. And that's what the scholarship is. You don't teach critical race theory to people in the third grade. The, you, know, you don't even you teach, teach it in undergrad. You, you I know. I mean, sometimes if you're smart, you could read that stuff. I mean, <laughs> but it's it's really an interesting way of thinking. And I think there's a reason why the right decided to seize upon that term. And I think they're not as dumb as as sometimes we think. Oh, they're not dumb. They're not dumb at all, right? It's strategy. It is strategy. And it's a combination of both finding a code word that could sort of paint everything as a kind of communism, right? But also, they don't like the scholarship. The scholarship is actually very dangerous for how they think because the right, much like liberals, they share the same idea that America is based on a creed. The creed is equality and opportunity for all and free enterprise. Like that's what America is built on. And if you don't make it, it's your fault. Because, you know, and that throughout America's history, there were some glitches, you know, slaves, you know, <laughs> some laws. Stuff. But Jim those Crow. glitches could just need to be adjusted. Like once you get the glitches out, the creed is still there. And critical race theory says, you know what? Even if there's a creed, the creed never applied. Never applied. It because it's structural. Exactly. It, it was built wrong. It's a structural element. In other words, racism is structural. No matter what you try to do, you can't sort of wish it away by changing hearts. You have to change policies and structures. You hear that, Simone Sanders? You hear it? Because <laughs> I went on her show and I almost lost my goddamn oh, mind. I, I can imagine. <laughs> because she was telling me you know, the system always corrects itself. Mm. And I said, that is wholly incorrect and impossible and implausible because it was incorrect from the onset. Exactly. So like, does it have the tools within it to just like reform? Right, exactly. And we can say it's incorrect from the outset or we could say it was always correct from the outset Mm. if the purpose was to generate wealth for a handful of people. Because in some ways it works. Effective. Right, exactly. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, anyone who knows just like basic undergraduate history can't possibly believe that because every time the system shifts, it's only because social movements force it. And then the system responds to it by reorganizing itself to continue to exploit and take wealth. In another surreptitious way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Exactly. When we look at African-American studies as a academic element, how can we look at African-American studies as a revolution tool? Well, because at this point, I don't know what it's going to take for folks to stop helping the system hurt us. Right, right. Well, you know, this is why I think it's under attack, because in... This is relevant. I mean, the College Board 
responded to the criticisms of the African-American Studies AP course by making it not an interdisciplinary critical course, but a kind of glorified history course. Because, you know, if we just take Black history, there's a way that it could be manipulated to come to Simone Sanders' conclusions, right? There's a way in which this thing we're calling Black studies could be used to prove this idea that the moral arc bends toward justice always, when we know that's not true. You know, it has to be bent. And so to your question, the only way Black studies could be a tool for revolution is if it's critical, if it interrogates systems and structures. We can't just give a list of achievements. That just reproduces the system. I'm not saying it's not good. I mean, I like talking about achievements, you know. Look at that. Well, yes. well, yeah, first this, first, first that. Yeah, you know. I hate first this. I hate <laughs> first this. You actually, I think you just gave me language to understand why I hate first this, first that. I'd be so frustrated. Ask Jeremiah, whenever we're like doing the radio show or anything, and they'd be like, we got the first black. I'm always like, how is it 2023 and we right. still on the first? How? <laughs> you know, like when I did my special at HBO. Mm-hmm. I was the first black woman in 10 years. And I was only the second black woman to have a stand-up comedy special mm-hmm. after Wanda Sykes. And people were saying it to me as if it's something I should be celebrating. Right. But the critical... Not, not a problem. <laughs> the critical black academic in me was like, this is shameful. This is not something that should be celebrated. And let me tell you, I think part of the problem is also that... And, oh, you're making me have some epiphanies. Because... I take a lot of heat, Dr. Kelly, because I am critical of things. What people, I think, don't understand is that being critical is just really trying to understand the ways in which things can be better, the ways in which things can be examined to create more for folks. You know, you identify the wins. You also identify the pain points, et cetera. Like that's examining things from a critical space. And I think a lot of people see that as like, why are you starting shit? (laughs) (laughs) Like, why can't you just be happy? Why can't you just enjoy, you know, like when people like myself, like yourself, when we look at the state of America and we say, well, we're not free. They're like, well, I mean, you in this big house in Calabasas talking about you ain't free. And I'm like, I have I got a scrap. Mm-hmm. Right. I got lucky enough and I was born into a situation like so many things had to align for me to be able to get here. Mm-hmm. That's not the same for folks who are not in the same situation. Right, right. It doesn't require, like, it doesn't require a thousand piece puzzle. Right. It's a 25 piece puzzle. Ba, 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 ba. But I think that what makes a lot of people feel a certain level of apprehension about wanting to really dive into black studies is the same reason why they don't want to dive into therapy. Right. Because it's like, well, you're looking a gift horse in the mouth. Like if we've already figured this out, like what, what are we, why, why would I do that? And then now I have to, figure out other things. Right. Because they think it's a gift horse as opposed to an oppressor. You know, they, they look at it and they say, you know, I'm so lucky I'm, I'm here. I don't want to lose it all. Or I don't have anything. And if I do this, I'm not going to get what I need. As long as we continue to see this world in this country as a fair place in which the objective is to accumulate as much wealth as possible and get as much property as possible. Say that again louder, please. (laughs) If we think of this country as a fair place and the objective is to get as much wealth or property as possible, that that's the thing that measures our success, then we're going to continue to be crabs in a barrel. You know, we could do better. 
We must do better. We have to. And funny, you know, this conversation, the same conversation was being had on many plantations where, you know, Nat Turner's got a plan and it's like, why do you want to do that? <laughs> why, <laughs> they, why give do I, why? they give us eats. <laughs> like, why you I know why? To... Why? You know? You know how not to get whipped. <laughs> like, just do that. Every single slave conspiracy, like uprising in U.S. history and including the Caribbean, was undermined by another enslaved person. It's true. And that also, and I don't have the research to support this, it's cursory, but I feel like every colonial changeover that I've studied, so if we look at like Lumumba, Uh we look at Maurice Bishop in Grenada, we look at, I'm blanking right now, but like there's always somebody right next to them who somebody got to them and was like, and they was like, all right, shit, I'm going to give them to you. Right. Like we are our own worst enemy and we find ourselves on such a regular basis not acknowledging that we are our own worst enemy though because we are pitted against each other mm-hmm. by the same enemy. Of is right. And I just feel like there's something really basic in like if you studied and you saw that, then you could dodge mm-hmm. it. Right. <laughs> and again, it comes back to being critical because we have to even criticize the revolutions that we tend to hold up. And I'll give you an example. Please. You know, Grenada is a very important place. Grenada is very important. And I know you got some connections there. Um, <laughs> a passport. Yes. Citizenship. <laughs> you know, and one of the things that, that happened with Grenada was, you know, Morris Bishop was amazing, amazing radical. But there were mistakes that were made. And some of those mistakes have to do with ongoing forms of oppression, the oppression of women, the failure to trust working class organizations, institutions, the fact that Grenada was getting support from Forbes Burnham in Guyana, who was the president of Guyana, who himself was waging war on Walter Rodney and the Working People's Alliance. In other words, more progressive elements in Guyana. So in many ways, we need to go back and study the Grenadian Revolution and figure out, okay, you've got Reagan, you've got U.S. imperialism, but then you've got these internal things that we've got to learn about. And that's why to be critical is to say all forms of oppression need to be criticized. Gender oppression, sexuality, class, you know, within our communities, within our communities, within our organizations. And even the idea that the purpose of revolution is power and power alone without thinking about what it means to redistribute that power, to really trust democratic institutions and allow people to make the mistakes that they want to make, but allow everyone to have a voice. Like we have to think about those things. It's very hard because that doesn't always lead to becoming a billionaire. Because if you want to be a billionaire, fine. But let's ask the question, what did it take? Would you have to give up? Who'd you have to give up? Who'd you have to give up? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only 
at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Like, I realized at a certain point, like, I can't be on a quest for money. Mm. I have to be on a quest for the opportunity to do my work in its most authentic forms and be able to be paid for it. Right. And I've had to say no a lot of times. I've had to really dig deep within myself to like create the opportunity myself instead of trying to, you know, get it from somewhere else. Like my next comedy special, I got to make my next comedy special myself Mm -hmm. because these networks are doing their own corporate BS. And it's not like I'm talking about things that they want (laughs) me to talk about. So I have to carve that course. But I also have to know that in charting that course, like that's not a billion dollar paycheck at the end of that. Right. Like I'm not doing the Chappelle Netflix deal. That's like, we're going to do a $60 million deal and I'm going to do all these specials. Like I don't get that opportunity. And Or Chris Rock. Or Chris Rock. That's not coming to me. Right. And I've had to become okay with that. And it's not even that I've become okay with that. I'm almost proud of it at this point because there's a freedom that I have Mm -hmm. in knowing that like it's in me. And I really try my best, Dr. Kelly, with this work to try to awaken that in everybody else Mm -hmm. and see it as an empowerment, not as an obligation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what African-American studies did for me. Right. The study of African-American studies was a discovery. I went to school in Orlando. So I did all my schooling in Orlando. And when I got to purchase, I was an acting major. And we could only take like a certain amount of classes outside of the acting conservatory freshman year. And the classes I took were African-American women writers and the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And these were things, you know, like I was aware of Maya Angelou, like I was aware of the Harlem Renaissance, but it was the critical study Mm -hmm. that really showed me the beauty, the understanding, the connectivity to myself, the legacy, and that also revealed to me like the mistakes, Mm -hmm. which then made me feel like these are ways in which I can with the beauty of 2020 hindsight, like correct for the future. Right. And that changed my whole life. Like literally it changed my whole life. Like being able to take those two classes changed my whole life because I realized this is all I care about. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it had been stolen from me because in grade school, I'm learning about Harriet. And even the way we learn about it, it's very like, yeah, Harriet Tubman, you know, she was just saving slaves and there was an Underground Railroad. And like, you know, I'm amazed at how many black people think the Underground Railroad was a real railroad, you know, like (laughs) that's like a real thing. And no, I'm not just talking about sis on Real Housewives because like I dated a dude who definitely turned to me in a car one day and was like, was it a real railroad? And I knew at that moment, like, we can't sleep together (laughs) because I can't, I, I, I can't, I can't. I can't fuck a nigga to think the railroad was underground was real. I can't do it. The same way I can't do your and your. Yeah. But I want to hear from you just like, what do you think the real repercussions in real time would be of the unchallenged efforts of mm-hmm. these folks? Because I do feel like the efforts are unchallenged in a major way because I think we are in an era where people do not believe that public protest, people do not believe right. that rising up is effective. Right. And here you are, you've named several scenarios where it's like, well, that's the only reason why things changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People think that the riots 
in the 60s and everything, they talk about it like that was fucked up. And it's like, do you think that that was a part? Right. Right. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Before I answer that question, though, I have to talk about you. Oh. Because you carried and you continue to carry all the scholarship that you've accumulated over the years, and you have shared it with the world. I think about, you know, when I, I wrote you about this, I Be Knowing is one of the most amazing seminars I've ever seen <gasps> in Black Studies. And so you had this massive audience and forced them to think hard about things, right? I, I wish <laughs> I could do that. So you're a genius. I mean, oh my God, no, I'm getting no, I'm saying that, that that is exactly what is required. And it's courageous, it's fearless, it's bringing to a massive group of people who may not be thinking about these things a way to think critically. So you prove it. You, you, you prove it. And that's, to me, in terms of your first question, what does it mean to be revolutionary? You're doing that work, right? You're doing that work. In terms of the other question... I need you to pause. Y'all have to understand that for me, like, my educators, like, y'all are so important. (laughs) Like, I I, I don't know how to say it, which says a lot because I know how to say mostly everything. But the educators in my life, like, people ask me, like, who's inspired you? You know, and they think I'm going to say, like, Chris Rock. And (laughs) and I'm just like, Dr. Kelly, Dr. Donna Ayn Davis at Purchase College, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Dr. Maribel, Dr. Farrah Jasmine Griffin, the late Dr. Gregory. Like, these are the people who inspired me because they made me understand that scholarship did not have to be something that only existed within this ivory tower. It didn't have to be something that was only accessible by a certain type of person. And it also just like created a sense of identity for me because, you know, you're learning about you and where you came from and being able to be critical about it in a way that I just don't think most people get a chance to do. And I was really formed by y'all. Like I Mm -hmm. was molded like clay by you guys' dedication to being critical. Mm -hmm. And I was very, like when people tell me about privilege, I'm like, I've had access to a number of different types of privilege, but I will always say that my greatest privilege was having access to great educators. I know for a fact that I would just have been a different person. I'd probably be incarcerated. (laughs) Because I was smart enough to have gone a different direction. Like, I probably could have been a hell of a scammer. Hell of a scammer. But I just, so it, when I, yeah, yeah, I know I'm very dramatic, but like, it means so much to me that you see that in me because as a 41 going on 42 year old person, like, I feel like my story is. I mean, it's not done, but like, you know, I've, I've lived enough life to where it's like, if I died today, like this would be the legacy. Like, you know, what I've done is, is what it is. And you want to feel like you have charted a course that you can be proud of, you know, and that you can stand on. And when I came to Columbia, my essay was based solely on, I want to come here and get this degree because I want to be someone who speaks about to and for the black community. Mm-hmm. And I need, I feel like I need this scholarship in order to do so. Right. Well, so you, you, you named some giants. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, these are some of my best friends. I mean, the, the, Stephen Gregory just passed away. Farrah Jasmine Griffin, who's been my friend for decades. Right. Manning Marable, who I would argue was a teacher to me as well. You know, I mean, you work with giants and you are part of that legacy. Like you are part of that legacy. It's just that your university is 
is outside, you know, the, outside walls. the walls, right. which is more effective, you know. Um, which is why you told me don't bother go get my PhD. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I went to Dr. Kelly. I was like, I think I'm going to get a PhD. You know, maybe that'll help me move to LA. He was like, what's doing that for? It's funny. There are two people who I said that, you and Danielle Deadweiler, who actually got her master's degree the same year you did, because I was her thesis advisor as well. Hilarious. Yes. yes. And I said, go do do art, do art. <laughs> and, you know, the impact that both of you are making is just tremendous, you know, and I'm just, I'm just so happy because... You know, there's something about the world of the university, which is pretty small, you know, which is why we try to write for the public. And any Black studies that is not public-facing is not really Black studies at all. And that's what makes it dangerous, you know? We just have to accept the fact that there will always be a war in Black studies, no matter what we do. We can never make it safe, because it can't be safe. We're, or it's ineffective. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not safe. We're trying to save our lives and save the lives of others, you know? So it's a fight. It's always a fight. I cut you off and I can't remember what you were going to say. about riots. Tell me about riots. Yeah, very simple. Think about what it meant between 1964 and 1972 for 2,000 cities and towns, 2,000, to go up in either flames or rebellion of some sort. And those uprisings, which Elizabeth Hinton writes about very brilliantly, she's also another student of mine, transformed America in ways that are both positive and negative. The positive is that without those riots, we wouldn't have a housing act. We wouldn't have like housing policies that are meant to provide for low-income people. We wouldn't have a lot of things that were the result, but we also got more policing. Now, I'm not saying that, that don't riot. I'm saying that the fear of our rebellion against police violence then takes a form of even more violence and more fascism. So we need to stop it. We need to stop the cycle now as soon as possible. Because what we experienced in this country between 1964 and 72 was war. In terms of the casualties, in terms of damage, it was a war as big as anything happening in the Middle East, you know? It's never categorized as that. No. Not. Why do you think so? Because of the creed, again, this, this mythology that the only reason Black people riot is because they're uneducated, mm. which is it's the other way around. <laughs> you know, they understand how the system works. It's because they're just broke and mad. They're jealous. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of... They're, they're animals. I mean, this is what... William Parker, who was a police chief in LAPD after the Watts uprising, he said, these are animals, called us animals, for basically rising up against not just police violence, but against dilapidated housing, the lack of, of jobs, things that just made people have to live in ways that they were barely out of being homeless. I mean, that's the kind of level of, of poverty. And people rose up against it. And what did they get? The warm poverty, you know, and whatever we think about its success or failure, those rebellions forced the federal government to respond with huge sums of money. And not only that, but create institutions and organizations in which you have what's called maximum feasible participation. That is to say, poor people themselves were the ones who ran some of those local 
agencies to try to provide money for people. Again, it's like you got the carrot and the stick. The carrot was, here's some more money. Here's a way to sort of move out of poverty. The stick was more policing. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, on one hand, the rebellion does create a certain level of movement, right? And mm-hmm. it does create a certain level of response because, as we said in the beginning, like they never just give it because it should be given. I have yet to hear of anyone like waking up. Actually, I can only think of one example is the creation of Sesame Street, where mm. like privileged white people looked around and were like, they're really doing these black kids terribly. We need to make something for them. In a thoughtful, right. conscious manner. Right. Like when I watched the making of Sesame Street, y'all, I literally like bawled at just the concept of like, oh, so humanity has existed mm-hmm. in this country in this form. And I actually learned from this show. So there we go. But otherwise, it's been a force of hand, force of hand, right. force of hand. So in that regard, and you say, you know, we have to stop the cycle. I don't know. People ask me all the time, like, what do we do? What should we do? And I'm like, I'm still reading. Like I'm still, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out because in my mind it's a multi pronged approach. And you, you pointed out before that there's multi pronged levels to whiteness, right? But there's also like a multi pronged approach to revolution. Like with Marconi and Black, our quadrants in our coat of arms, it's you know woke fam, rebel fam, fly fam, and culture fam. And the idea behind that is that you need scholarship, you need art, mm-hmm. you need force, and you also just need unity. Right. And those four factions, I feel like to try and get them all aligned, like Voltron just feels. Well, that's the answer to the question, though. Those four factors, those four acts of creation, right, are necessary to make change. All four. You need to have art. You know, you need to have education. You need to have power, Mm -hmm. you know. But we have to think about struggle in terms of protracted, that is to say, it's going to continue on and on and on. It's like Lenin says, you know, two steps forward, one step back. We're constantly in struggle. So we're going to win some. And then when we win, we create the conditions for the forces against us to respond with some other way. And sometimes those responses are ideological. They'll take our art from us Mm -hmm. and resell it to us. And then make us want to want the things that they want. And then we see through it and we fight again. So if we think of change as an event, we'll never get there. If we think of change as constant struggle, then we live our lives in struggle from the day we're born until we die. And something beautiful about that, you know, it's not just a fight. But it's about the struggle to make community, to make new friendships, to make new relationships. And along the way, we got to make money. No question about it. I'm not against making money, by the way. People need to live. We need to figure out ways to take care of each other, you know? And that's why something as basic as like abolish the police and abolish the prisons, that's not pie in the sky. We can't continue to live like this unless we have public safety that's really helping people really rather public safety. Right. Public, <laughs> the police are killing us. It's dangerous. We can't put people in cages and expect us to, to come back. Come come back as fully realized human beings. So those two fights alone have all four quadrants of your show. Mm-hmm. They're all there. And that's my answer. I know it's you know, people want instant gratification and instant change. But because, even if you have instant change, there's something else 
Right. You know what I mean? Like you get that. And then by nature of having that, you have more clarity or you have more access or you have more, more insight or, you know, now you don't have to look at this anymore. So you're able to pivot and you're like, well, what about this? Right. We got to do this now too. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, I mean, at this point, honestly, the internet makes me feel so overwhelmed sometimes because I'm like, everybody's in a struggle. Mm -hmm. Everybody's in a fight for something. I mean, I saw a woman on a plane the other day who was like, you know, I am wheelchair bound and I was on a flight and they didn't have an aisle chair to take me to the bathroom. So I had to Mm -hmm. pull myself through an aisle to the back. And I'm just like, that's a struggle that I didn't even... No existed and it's a completely valuable and relevant and like necessary fight to be had. Exactly. And I wonder, because someone had said in my comments the other day, they were like, uh, I posted something where the House Oversight Committee had put this sentence together that basically just said like, we do not support white nationalism, white supremacy, or the replacement theory, and we don't think it should have any place in our decision making. And all the Democrats signed it and all the Republicans didn't sign it. <laughs> just basic, right? And this guy was like, yeah, but ain't nothing y'all could do about it. So what's the point? <sighs> and I said, you know, thank you for adding that comment and illuminating this conversation. You must come from a long line of why y'all stirring up trouble, Negroes. Mm-hmm. And you... And your line of why y'all stirring up trouble, Negroes, even though you got to say that, you still benefited from the fight of everybody else to get your black ass a semblance of access and freedom in this process. Exactly. And I feel like at the most basic core, my study of African-American studies has reminded me on a regular basis that the fights are worth it. Mm-hmm. And the only it. option is to not fight. And that would not be valuable. And I feel like when I see a lot of black people who say like, well, I'm not going to vote because there's no one to vote for. I'm just like, well, I don't know that that's practical. It seems like an impractical way to engage. How is it engaging with students of this generation in African-American studies? Because I feel like this generation is is a lot of the types of folks that are in my DMs and in my comments that are counter- Right, right. Or they yeah, feel like I'm making it a pie in the sky. It's it's a mix. I mean, the one thing that I've encountered the last five, six, seven years is a level of pessimism that we can't afford, you know, and... Is it apathy or pessimism? It, it is definitely pessimism, but it's a pessimism built on, you know, some Afro-pessimist ideas, although pe- Afro-pessimism is not always pessimistic, but Afro-pessimism in that they've been told that the structure of the universe, of the planet, is anti-Blackness. So therefore, everyone's anti-Black. And if everyone's anti-Black, we'll never have a coalition. And if it could never be coalition, then we shouldn't even waste our time fighting. We only 
defend ourselves, protect ourselves. But the rest of it, you know, unless the world blows up, nothing's going to happen. And part of what it does is that same pessimism convinces them that any Black person in a position of power is always a good thing. Even if that Black person's signing legislation to put you in jail longer, even if that Black person is like literally passing legislation to raise the cost of housing, for mm-hmm. example. And so there's no sense of fight, that we can fight. And that's the thing that I've seen. And it's not everyone, just a yeah. few. On the other hand, I see a new generation of students who do want to fight, who do see in reading Black studies that if it is a critique of Western civilization, they want to overthrow the whole Western civilization. They see the connections, you know, and they are ready for the fight. They're like you, ready to fight. I often say to myself, like, enjoy this little house now because, like, shit might go down. <laughs> you're going to have to be in the fight. <laughs> like, you're going to be in some camouflage in a hut somewhere <laughs> dodging the rain, holding the AK. Like, I really be saying that to myself. Now, my lower back may not hold up, but <laughs> I'll be there. I mean, my last question is really just... How have you had to change, if anything, your approach to teaching African-American studies now since you were teaching me? Right. Two things. Uh, One is that students seem to be more traumatized by Mm. everything. Right. Everything is trauma. It doesn't matter what it is. So I can't show images, for example, of certain things. Students complain about reading that is either too difficult or too traumatizing. And I've had students complain about reading Franz Fanon. It's too traumatizing. So there's that. How is that valuable? Yeah, though? exactly. It's not valuable. It's a real struggle because, and I get myself in trouble for this because I don't think everything, I don't think every microaggression is trauma. It's not. I think we've misunderstood trauma. Trauma becomes this catchword. And the word trigger as well. Right. Trigger. I, I can't even, I can't begin <laughs> to I'm tell triggering you. you by saying trigger. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the second thing is, Nobody, I shouldn't know. Not enough. Uh, there, there are not enough students who want to read and read deeply. So I saw someone who I consider to be a great educator and who actually was on the show mm-hmm. say recently that not everybody learns best from reading and we need to focus more on YouTube, get the face, on, on YouTube accessible ways of teaching. And I had to sit with that for a second because at first I was like, maybe you old. Maybe <laughs> maybe you old, Amanda. <laughs> and then I had to say no. No. Mm-mm. Reading as a tactile skill is very different than watching something. Yes. Being able to read words and process them in your mind and also learn words, right? right? Because, you know, you can go on a date with somebody. My friend was on a date with somebody and he said, you know, that was a real fox pass. And she was like, I'm sorry, what? And and he said that was a real fox pass. And she was like, are you saying faux pas? And he goes, what do you mean? And she wrote it out. And he was like, yeah, fox pass. (laughs) And she was like, wow, like you've only seen it. You've never read it. But like you'd never had to critically engage with this. And then she still slept with him. But that's the difference between me and her. But but I just, reading is... It's necessary. Right. And not only is it necessary, but beyond expanding your vocabulary, 
writers are not always trying to give you a visual image. They're trying to get a much deeper kind of dialectical understanding. So like you're a poet, right? So I go back, and I still listen to your Never Dull Moment. And, really? Oh yeah, I do. I do. It's not, it's not my computer. Y'all don't even know about Never Dull right. Moment. Y'all don't even know. But in that, it's poetry. I mean, it's hip hop, but you're coming at it as a poet. And the thing about poetry, you have to understand metaphor. You have to understand simile. You have to understand symbolism. If you don't read, then you listen to a poem and you become offended because you think something is literal when it's actually a metaphor. And that is a big problem. That's a huge problem. Cece Winans said she didn't want to do the I'm Every Woman video because the first line is, I can cast a spell. And she felt that that was Whitney Which saying <laughs> she's a witch. And she said, I didn't want to be a part of mm-hmm. witchcraft. And it's like, well, no, that was symbolism right. and a metaphor right. to say that I am magical. Right. If you do not know a metaphor, then students get like offended or they're traumatized by things that are. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, Nuance. you can't say you can't. You know, there's a whole N-word issue, and I understand that. Um, I understand it's about who says it. But sometimes the fact that you're reading classical literature or reading something that might come out in the 1960s where that word is everywhere, right? For a reason, because it, it's a, sometimes that, the N-word is metaphorical, yes. you know, and you can't say it. That's a small thing, but the bigger thing is that if you can't read and you can't read deeply, there's no movie on the planet that could capture what Fanon is saying in Black Skin, White Mass, or what Du Bois is saying in Black Reconstruction, or what C.L.R. James is saying in Black Jacobins. You know, you can't understand it unless you read deeply. And I'm afraid that, and again, it's not everyone, but there are enough students who fight me on this. And they're like... What's their fight? Well, like, why would you make us read this? You know, it's just too hard. It's just too much work. And I thought you were cool. You know, like, I got that. Well, let me tell you something. (laughs) You know, your class was a tough one. I am a slow reader. And I had to figure out how I was going to make it through the class. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I will tell you that it actually has made me a more effective person by having to figure it out because y'all I'm gonna tell you now I couldn't read everything right. I'm too sl- I'm literally too slow of a reader so I, I, I gave three times more reading in those days than I do now oh my so god you know. really oh yeah no definitely I I, I went back and look at my syllabus yeah. and it's like oh I was I was killing yeah, this y'all in a <laughs> yeah this is a choco yeah this is a choco like it would be like read this book by next week and right, I'm like right. ah like I can't but then there would be people in the class who could Tongo could read the whole goddamn yes. book yeah, and then be able to synthesize it. And Tongo, whoever's watching this and knows Tongo, tell him he owes me a fucking phone call. This is the second time now that I've told somebody because I'm not going to call you because you owe me a call. He's a brilliant but, poet. Brilliant. Brilliant poet, brilliant person. And he could read the whole gosh darn book and then synthesize it and bring it back. And I'd be like, damn, I, 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 didn't, I, I, didn't, I, couldn't, get, I couldn't get through. <laughs> but what I learned to do was... I would read and like really understand the table of contents. Mm-hmm. So that's a good beginning. That's a good strategy. So now I'm like, I know what this book 
is about. Okay. I know what's going to be covered in this book. Then you would always assign like, this is what you're, you know, uh, you need to read this chapter. Now y'all, the chapter might be 35 pages, which you're like, that's not that long. I cannot stress to you how slow I read. It is a life's work on figuring out how to read faster. But I would get through that 35 pages and I knew like, okay, but you got to read something else because he's assigned you like five chapters in this damn book and you done read one. (laughs) You done read one. So then what I would do is I would try and read at least, if you had assigned like five pieces of work, I would read three. And I knew I couldn't get the last two done, but I would read enough, enough of them where I could understand like, this is the point of view of this. Mm -hmm. This is the point of view of this. But then I would also pay really close attention in class. Right. And I really think that a lot of folks don't understand that this is why you go to school. Mm-hmm. They think, you know, I'm going to just read this by myself and that should be enough. Like, I don't need to go to school because I can just right. read this by myself and that should right. be enough. So much of my learning came from learning in a group. Exactly. Exactly. And that's something that you that people will miss if they're at home watching YouTube. And they, there's no place to actually have a conversation or discussion. Because, look, there are people in that class who read the whole thing and couldn't understand it. And it's the conversation that produced some oh. understanding. And most people in the class did not read all of it. I know that for a fact. <laughs> Maybe 15% read everything. I feel like what we're seeing now is there's also so much isolation and the pandemic assisted in that, mm-hmm. right? This kind of isolated, like, I just need me. I can do it just by myself, you know, and I can figure it out. And it's not the case. Like, I want to, at some point, like, take these podcasts and, like, do a forum, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, have people talk to each other. We did one live podcast episode where we actually had a forum and I lost my voice literally in the middle of the podcast. Like, 20 minutes in, I said something about my ex and my voice left. It was like he had come and said, (laughs) stop talking about me. And I lost my voice on a stage. And so I ended up having to lean on the audience Mm -hmm. to actually like make this happen. And what ended up happening was people started communicating with each other across the audience around the topic. And it was side effects of like insecure men, I think. And they came up with that topic. The audience came up with the topic on the spot. But because I couldn't like be the keynote speaker, they ended up communicating with each other and it created a forum instead of simply just them watching. And it was so much more valuable. Right. I felt like it was so much more valuable. Right before the pandemic, I started something, I did one that I called the Soulful Safe Space. And the idea was that we would all meet in a space to talk about something that's being talked about in the zeitgeist. And at the time, it was when Snoop had told Gail that she was a nappy-headed hoe or something to that effect. (laughs) Something to that effect. He has since apologized. But there was a split like some people were like, well, he shouldn't have said that. And some people were like, well, she shouldn't have said nothing to Lisa Leslie about Colby's rape allegations in the wake of his death. Mm-hmm. So she earned that. But it was a very like black community conversation around like respectability, around elders, around like how do we talk about each other? And so we met at this coffee shop and we had two mics and me and this incredible brother, Shaka Senghor, we were the like moderators. And then people would on one mic, you were for Snoop, but the other mic, you were for Gail. And people would like say their thoughts. But what was interesting was how many people started out in the middle that didn't have a point of view. Right. And then as people started talking, they would pick a side. And then what was cool is when you saw people change sides, you know, that they was on that side and they was going to talk about it. And they heard something on this side is like, actually, you know what? No, I'm going to head over there. I'm going to head over there. But we made sure to make sure that it was 
a safe space of conversation. But I feel like whether people left with a changed mind or not, there was a critical exchange mm-hmm. and examination of something that happened in a group of people that genuinely cared about keeping peace. Right. And about like intellectualizing something. And when we talk about African-American studies, I feel like that is what happens in our classrooms more than just like studying history or studying poetry. We are as a group of people who actually care about each other and our blackness. That's right. We're convening around something with care. Right. You know, it's not just critical for the sake of it's with care. Right. And I really just want to, you know, thank you for being somebody who has charged the course with that and who's who's stuck with it. I think a lot of people come to academia and they're like, get me the fuck out of (laughs) here. And, you know, that's really a real thing. Now, y'all know we always go to the Patreon for a little special segment and we're going to play a little game with Dr. Kelly because he's a fun guy and he's a knowledgeable guy. And we're going to play a little game called what black ass thing does this photo make you think of? That's that's the unofficial title. Okay. So basically, we're going to show Dr. Kelly some photos, and you are going to share with us the first okay. thing that you think of, all right? So if y'all want to check out this segment, make sure you go to theamandaverse.com and join us. If you miss this segment, well, you know, we can't have everything, okay? We can't have everything. But we'll be right back. The last dose. Well, Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. And it was so great to see you. And, you know, what I really am always aspiring to do, particularly with this podcast, is to create spaces where people's thoughts are challenged, Mm -hmm. you know, and where folks feel comfortable to say, well, let me maybe approach something differently. And when it comes to African-American studies, I think what we learn in this conversation, or what we're reminded of in this conversation, is the fact that African American studies was not something that was easily won, mm-hmm. <laughs> and thus it will not be easily kept. Right, right. And so, just as those came before us, loaded up their guns or got uncomfortable for a week, you know, because I think if uh, Columbia, I feel like they did a sit-in as well. Oh yeah, they were fighting for Black studies and fighting apartheid. against gentrification. Yeah, and, and apartheid as well. And this was a very hopeful conversation for me because what happens is that pessimism that you talked about, that Afro-pessimism, it really is like the yawns. You know how someone yawns and everybody else starts yawning? Like it's very easily spread in Mm -hmm. a, and we've been through a pandemic, so we know how easily things are spread. (laughs) And it's a lot easier to spread negativity than joy. Right. I don't know why that is. I don't know what it is about the atoms in us that the protons don't really be as receptive as the electrons. But nonetheless, you really help to spread joy and hope in this conversation around just the fact that, you know what, those before us fought and we can continue to fight and it's not going to deplete our joy. Well, I'm just trying to follow you because you, you, you are the carrier, the keeper of this tradition. And as I wrote in my inscription to your book, you are both student and teacher and scholar and the very embodiment of joy, which is something we need. I put all that in there, you know? So thank you. He did, actually. That's almost verbatim. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. So Amanda, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
And you all, I'll put a list of all of Dr. Kelly's books in the caption so that you all can go out there and support, try your best to support from independent bookstores, particularly black bookstores. I know it's the easiest to go to Amazon, mm-hmm. but that's when authors get the least money. Right. So there you go. <laughs> all right. Thank y'all. Make sure to tell a friend and to like, to comment, and subscribe to Small Doses. Small Doses. 